Welcome to Prairie Doc On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation of 501c3 provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Doc programs. Please follow the Prairie Doc on Facebook and YouTube and go to prairiedoc.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Breast cancer survival rates have increased and deaths are on the decline. Learn about a new personalized approach to diagnosis and treatment. Beating breast cancer, tonight on Call with the Prairie Doc. Hello, I'm Dr. Deborah Johnston, tonight's Prairie Doc. This season, we continue to bring our viewers trusted health information from doctors and healthcare professionals within your own communities. Thank you for joining us again. Tonight, we're discussing breast cancer. And joining us in the studio here in Brookings are Dr. Sarah Mariquin from Avera Medical Group Specialty Care in Brookings and Dr. Allie Higgins from Avera Medical Group Oncology and Hematology in Sioux Falls. Welcome ladies. I'm so grateful that you're here with us tonight. This is going to be a really fun show. We've got two experts on the subject. Dr. Mariquin, I'm going to start with you. Tell us, tell our viewers a little bit about who you are and what your training is, what your specialty is. Um, so I'm a general surgeon here in Brookings. Um, I'm trained in general surgery, which is a whole host of things besides just breast surgery, but also you know the bread and butter surgery of gallbladders, hernias, appendixes, lumps, bumps, you name it. General surgeon probably been there. <laughs> um, in terms of breast, um, we're trained to do the breast cancer surgery part, which is the actual removal of the breast cancer. Um, and then we work with plastic surgeons who usually do the reconstructive part. Okay, and Dr. Higgins, tell us about you and, and what your specialty is. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm originally from the Sioux Falls area um, and I'm back for the last year practicing medical oncology in Sioux Falls at the Prairie Center. Um, I treat uh, solid cancers, but primarily treat patients who have breast cancer diagnoses. Um, I work very closely with surgeons such as Dr. Mariquin and those surgeons we have in Sioux Falls. Um, and I kind of come on the other end of surgery typically, which is giving treatments that go throughout the body to help treat breast cancer, help prevent it from coming back. Now you, you said solid cancers, what does that entail? Yeah, so um, as we go through our training, I'm trained to uh, diagnose and treat problems with blood, but then also uh, trained to treat problems with cancers that happen in organs such as uh, the colon, the breast, um, the brain, these other tissues. So by solid cancers, I just mean I also see a few other types of cancers like colon and lung and those. Okay, yeah. so basically all kinds of cancers. Yeah. Um, you may play some role in the medical treatment of those as opposed to cutting things out, which is what you do. That's right. All right, yeah. fabulous. Before we start our conversation, we invite you, our audience, to submit your questions about breast cancer. We look forward to answering your questions. Viewers can contact us three ways. Call 1-888-376-6225. Send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org. 
or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. We will work to answer as many of your questions as possible in the time we have. Sometimes we receive more questions than we can cover, and we apologize if we don't get to your question. To encourage you to ask early, all questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. And the winner will be announced at the end of the program. Your question will remain anonymous, but please provide contact information when you submit your question. So let's kind of start in the beginning. What might somebody notice that would make you worry about a diagnosis of breast cancer? Dr. Higgins. Yeah. So um, usually a woman's going to notice some sort of new or enlarging lump in the breast tissue. Um, it sometimes is painless, it's sometimes tender or painful. Um, other things women may notice would be, for instance, drainage from the nipple, maybe a change in how their nipple looks, maybe it's slightly uh, pulled in, or maybe even a rash on the breast. Um, so any of those things are not normal and do require some sort of evaluation. Are all changes in the breast like that cancer? Absolutely not, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the large majority of these changes are gonna end up being something non-cancerous. Um, there's a lot of what we call benign or non-cancerous reasons for lumps in a breast. Um, that being said though, it, it's still important to monitor that, make sure that it's getting better and have it evaluated if it's not. All right. She mentioned, uh, Allie mentioned that nipple kind of pulling in. Is it always abnormal to have an inverted nipple? It's not always abnormal, um, but if it's a new change, that is abnormal. So it's yes. the change that's important. And the, when you notice that, I agree with Dr. Higgins, you, you need to get that evaluated. Yeah, yeah. especially that inverted nipple. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's yeah. a real yeah. alarm sign. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. Um, is there always something you can feel in the breast that indicates breast cancer? You know, not always. I think probably with this, with our imaging now and our mammograms being so much better than they were probably 20 years ago, and I don't know, Dr. Higgins, maybe you'll comment on this too, I feel like a lot of cancers now are usually asymptomatic, and they were found on a screening, which means you can't really feel a lump or a bump or have any of those signs of, you know, concerning signs, which is why it's important to get your screening mammogram every year. Absolutely. I, I concur. So um, a lot of women who come in for a new diagnosis of breast cancer did not feel a lump. They went in for their screening mammogram and the, the change was found on that picture. So if I find a change and I think, well, I'm afraid to go see my doctor. I don't, I don't want to go see my doctor. I'm just going to go get my mammogram. And my mammogram comes back okay. Can I relax? I appreciate you asking that question because um, no, mammograms are not perfect. Um, women have different sorts of density of their breast tissue and other things that can um, make it challenging to see a cancer on a mammogram. And there's certain types of breast cancer. One of them is known as lobular breast cancer that's very hard to see on a mammogram. So I was just talking to a patient this week about that because she had had a mammogram done about three months before she noticed a lump. And she delayed a little bit coming in because she had had a normal mammogram recently. So she said, I really feel like we need to educate women on the fact that a mammogram is not perfect. So. 
when I went through training a million years ago before 3D <laughs> mammograms and everything, we said that 10% of breast cancers just can't be seen yeah. on, on mammograms. So uh, I don't know if that's still an accurate number or not, or that, that I wish our yeah. radiologist had yeah. been able to join us today, because that would be a wonderful question for her. But yeah. any input from you two? What's your understanding of that, or do you not have more yeah. current numbers than I do? Yeah, I would say it's not quite 10% anymore because we do kind of the special, as you mentioned, 3D or tomosynthesis imaging with a lot of mammograms. Um, but I mean, certainly it probably falls somewhere between 5 and 10% now. Yeah, I agree. And I think another important thing to know is if you have you feel a lump or a bump and you had a normal mammogram, well there's other imaging modality we do with the breast, such as ultrasound or MRI, that sometimes on the mammogram will be normal, but then the MRI might pick something up. So sometimes we have to use other imaging modalities to, to get the diagnosis, which right. is important to Other ways remember. of looking at it, they can see tissue in different yeah. ways that exactly. make it better for the radiologist, so yeah. wonderful. Well, we're starting to get some more questions here, so, um, here's a good, a good question from someone. You know, we always talk about breast cancer and women, women, women. Can men get breast cancer? They can, yes, and I'm glad somebody asked that question. So uh, women, women have a one in eight chance of getting breast cancer, 12% uh, over their lifetime. But men can also get breast cancer. Those, those, those numbers are much smaller, of course, 1% or so. Uh, but men have a layer of breast tissue. It's just that they don't have as much of it, and it doesn't go through as many dynamic or uh, changes as a woman's breast. So their incidence or their, um, the amount of breast cancer seen in men is lower. But it certainly can happen. And a lot of men don't realize that. A lot of women don't know that. Um, so a lot of times men come to us with a later stage cancer because they haven't realized that that lump was something they needed to be concerned about. You mentioned all the changes that a woman's breast mm -hmm. tissue goes through. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? What, what causes those changes? Yeah, I mean, so fluctuating hormone levels through a woman's um, life, you know, while she's going through menstrual cycles, while she's ovulating, having children, lactating, all of these things change the woman's breast over time and can increase the chances that uh, a cell in the breast makes a mistake while it's growing and develops into a cancer. Um, so that, can, that is part of the reason why women have a higher risk of breast cancer. How about the risk for transgender men? That was a question that came up for me in the process of kind of starting the conversation about what we wanted to talk about, and I didn't really know the answer to that. Are, is there any data that you're aware of on transgender men and their breast cancer risk? Um, let's see, so I mean I certainly, um, there is um, a chance of any person who's had breast tissue or has breast tissue to have breast cancer. So a transgender man even has, you know, even if you've had breast tissue removed can still have breast tissue remaining later on. Yeah, I yeah. can imagine you can really speak for in the operating room, how do you know you got every cell? Mm -hmm. Right, I mean, it's very difficult. Even when you're removing breast tissue, it looks essentially the same as the fat tissue under the skin. Mm -hmm. So 
it's that's why they think when you like do a mastectomy, um, you still need to have those yearly checks afterwards because there is still about they say like three percent of breast tissue could be remaining behind. Mm -hmm. Even with the most careful exactly. surgeon, the yeah. tissue just gets left behind. Yep. So the bottom line is. Uh, transgender individual, transgender man, transgender woman still needs to have that awareness and that screening exactly. and that testing. Perfect. So, um, And here's an, another question, and I know this is an answer that is very much in flux, um, the survival rate for breast cancer. And I know that's also something that there's not a one-size answer. There's a what, tough question. What, yeah. what, what kinds of things, Dr. Mariquin, might influence a person's survival rates with their breast cancer? So definitely, I think um, the stage of the cancer when it's first diagnosed is going to play a big role in that. So, um, and can you explain what determines the stage? Um, so the stage of cancer, you know, also it's kind of complex, so I'm gonna try to simplify it. Dr. Higgins, please feel free to, to talk to. Um, but the size of the tumor, um, so the size of the mass. Um, also, if the tumor cells have spread to the lymph nodes, um, which are in the armpit or in the chest or not, or if it's spread um, to any other part of the body, such as the bones. Um, so that would definitely change the survival rate. Also, um, you know, your age and the hormone receptors. So breast cancer can be um, sensitive to different hormones, specifically like estrogen or progesterone. And so being not sensitive to that is actually a higher risk type of cancer than if it was sensitive to that. And also, those different, are the two main female those hormones. Are the two, yes, exactly, yeah. which is kind of what Dr. Higgins was talking about earlier when you talk about your breast changing with hormones. Those are the hormones that can affect developing cancer as well. So I think um, most of our viewers will have seen the commercials on TV if you have blah, blah, P-R-E-R, H-E-R-2. What's that? Yeah, um, breast cancer is really quite a diverse group of diseases. It's not one thing, um, and I think that surprises a lot of patients when they first receive the diagnosis. Um, really, the type of breast cancer you have is dependent on estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, and a protein called HER2. Um, the first two, as Dr. Mariquin mentioned, receptor means somewhere um, a, a element or a, a protein can bind to. So a place on the cancer cell where estrogen can attach to that cancer cell and send a, a signal for it to grow. So the most common type of breast cancer is that that's positive for estrogen or progesterone receptor and negative for HER2. It's growing primarily due to female hormones or hormones that are um, uh, in the woman's and in the men's body to some extent. Um, HER2 is a different protein that can be found on about 15 to 20% of breast cancers that sends a continuous uh, signal to grow to that cancer cell. And the reason it's so important is because cancer researchers found drugs that can shut this down um, and have drastically improved how patients do who have HER2 positive breast cancer. And then there's also a, a smaller subset of breast cancers that are negative for all three of these. So we call those triple negative breast cancers. Those do tend to be our most aggressive breast cancers. So as an overall estimate, yeah. um, based on stage, because I think that's the thing that we typically understand has the biggest impact, what would you say survival rates for 
people are. Yeah, yeah, and I, I agree that stage is very important. Um, in the breast cancer world, actually, the biology, those things I was those talking about, hormones. like estrogen, progesterone, HER2, those are actually more impactful even on um, how uh, survival from breast cancer. Okay. So the biology of the cancer, what, what drives it to grow, actually affects prognosis more than anything else. Um, still catching them early, despite whatever type of breast cancer it, it is, is important. Um, so for the most common type of breast cancer, which is the hormone sensitive type that has estrogen or progesterone, um, survival rates are incredibly high. Um, so, you know, stage one and two breast cancers, meaning they're caught early, they haven't spread uh, even to lymph nodes in that area. Um, survival rates are in the upper 90% over 10 years for those patients. So um, they do very well um, with the right treatment, of course, because we have good treatments for those. Okay. Yeah. And how about those unfortunate individuals yeah. that are triple negative in that stage one or two? Yeah, those are more challenging. Um, We've really shifted the way we treat those cancers because we realize that just taking them out with surgery and giving them some chemo, uh, those patients chemo afterwards wasn't good enough. So what we've started to do is we give those patients some chemotherapy and other treatments uh, like those that shut down that HER2, HER2 protein that I mentioned or sometimes immunotherapy for our triple negatives. We give that first and then we can see how well we shrunk the cancer down and we can change that patient's treatment to help them have a lower risk of that cancer coming back later on. Um, so I would say patients are doing much better now, but for instance, a triple negative um, breast cancer that presents maybe as a stage two, it's in the lymph nodes, those survival rates might be closer to 70% over five years. So it makes a huge yeah, difference. it does. Huge difference. Both stage yeah. and yep. status. So. It's been around 60 years since we first started offering mammograms, and breast cancer detection has come a long way since then. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer shows us some of the latest technology. Dr. Sabina Chowdhury is a radiologist at Avera Health in Sioux Falls who helps spot breast cancer. Dr. Chowdhury says mammography has been around for a long time, but new types are emerging. One of them is CESM. While we take mammogram pictures, we give them contrast. This is contrast that is frequently known as iodinated contrast or CT dye uh, in lame people's term. And after we inject the contrast, we do a mammogram. CESM is a software program that still uses a mammography machine. Dr. Chowdhury says the tests are better for detection of breast cancer and says it has helped more than 10 women per 1,000 find breast cancer. The way the test works is that if there are areas of concern that light up or enhance uh, after that dye is given, we may then do further testing with things like biopsies, which can then guide further diagnosis in those women. While Dr. Chowdhury says a breast MRI is the best tool for breast cancer confirmation, CESM is a detection system that costs less. CSM is a less expensive tool that can be readily available to a broader or larger population of women. 
However, Dr. Chowdhury says clinical trials for CESM are underway across the country to test its effectiveness as it's becoming more accepted in hospitals. Dr. Chowdhury says CESM is very effective when giving a negative diagnosis. So the negative predictive value of the CESM test is very high. So if the areas that we are concerned about do not enhance uh, and we give our patients a negative result, they can be worry-free because that's very, very effective. If a cancer is found through CESM, a stereotactic biopsy is started to find the cancer and confirm it. So we would then perform those biopsies using that device directed to the area of concern. It's so exciting to hear about these new technologies, and I just think about how much things have changed just in the last 10 years. It's just absolutely amazing. So, and our wonderful radiologists like Dr. Chowdhury are such an important part of the breast cancer team. So we, and that's actually uh, falls right into this next question we have um, about dense breast tissue and whether dense tissue density changes susceptibility to cancer? Yeah, um, it's a great question that we get a lot from our patients. So, um, and we get it more now because about a year ago, the government asked us to start telling women if they have dense breasts. So this is why you're getting the letters that you might not have gotten in the past. Um, so dense breast tissue is really referring to how the breast tissue looks on your mammogram. Um, on a mammogram, fat tissue looks black and glandular or fibrous tissue looks white. The more glandular tissue your breast has, the more white it looks on a mammogram. And the challenge of that is that cancer looks white on a mammogram. So the more dense the breast, the harder it is to see small changes or small cancers, sometimes even slightly larger cancers. So the first thing to know is if you have dense breast, it's that much more important to be seen if you feel a lump that wasn't caught on your mammogram and it's important to discuss it with your primary care physician to see if there's a reason to do a different type of picture of your breast to help find breast cancer. Um, there is, for somewhat poorly understood reasons, a slight increased risk of breast cancer if you have dense breast tissue as well. Okay, so the answer is yes. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. but more significantly, it's just harder to see with the technology yeah. that we normally use. Correct. So, um, And we have a reader who asked if there is any relationship between breast cancer and breastfeeding. Do you want to field that one, Sarah? What's your... <laughs> well, I think actually breastfeeding is protective against breast cancers, meaning that if you do breastfeed your children, um, then it actually is a protective or it decreases your risk of getting breast cancer. Yeah. So, Dr. Yeah. Higgins probably knows the theory of that more <laughs> than I am. <laughs> well, and age at first pregnancy yep. is another risk factor. So yeah. women who've never had a pregnancy or who had their first baby later in life have a higher risk. Yeah. I think it so. all goes back to the thought process that biology is king. That's kind of a, 
a mantra of all cancers, um, in the surgery world at least, is biology of the cancer really is king of how to treat the cancer. And I think that's where most cancer treatment is going. So when you think about like why would breastfeeding change those risks or why early menopause or late menopause, and it all has to do with those hormone exposure mm -hmm. to the breasts and how much over time, what type of exposure right, was exactly. there. When you're pregnant or when you're breastfeeding, that sends signals to kind of shut down your ovaries. So over your lifetime, if you have multiple pregnancies or you breastfeed for many years of your adult life, your, your breast tissue was exposed to less estrogen and therefore has a lower risk of cancer. And less cyclic Correct. estrogen yeah. too. Yeah. So there's a kind of related um, question here that I thought was uh, was very interesting because it's certainly something that I as a primary care physician field in the office do external hormones like birth control pills increase the chance of cancer yeah it's a good question and it's a complicated one so Many, many years ago, data came out about a slight increased risk of breast cancer with combined oral contraceptives or those sorts of birth control methods. Um, over the years, though, I think something to keep in mind is those, those hormone levels and those pills have changed and they've kind of fine-tuned those. So right now, we really don't think there's, a, there's much increased, if any, risk with a traditional kind of oral contraceptive pill. Um, that's, of course, in the setting of a woman who's not had breast cancer. Mm -hmm. If you've had breast cancer that's sensitive to hormones, you certainly want to avoid any sort of hormonal replacement. And birth control pills as opposed to hormone replacement therapy. What yeah. I will often point out to my patients yeah. is, you're supposed to have these hormones right now. It's not the same as my ovaries have stopped working and now I'm extending the period of time that I have that hormone exposure. Yes, so they're yeah. not, not the same, not equivalent. Correct, yes. So. Um, we have a question from a viewer here about lifestyle changes that can help prevent breast cancer. What what kinds of things do you tell people, Sarah, when you've given them the news that their biopsy was okay and they ask, okay, what can I do to, to reduce my risk? Um, well, one big one would be smoking. If they are smokers, they should stop. Um, which it doesn't is, matter what the question is. My answer that's is, you know, you should stop you smoking. Stop smoking. Yeah, stop smoking. <laughs> Wear your sunscreen. <laughs> and that, that's a really hard thing to tell people, but I think, you know, it's kind of important with all cancers. Stop yeah. smoking. I think that's a big one. Um, you know, another one is obviously get your screening memos. Um, I think there's always something to be said about lifestyle changes in terms of exercise and um, you know eating healthy. I think we in the medical world sometimes don't emphasize that enough to our patients because it's really tough to tell people to quit smoking, exercise 30 minutes every day, eat all these healthy foods, and like change your whole entire life. Like that is not realistic. But I think that is really important that we do emphasize that this can play a role in in cancer prevention. 
Anything to add, Dr. Higgins? Yeah, no, I agree. As a cancer doctor, always encourage uh, <laughs> to stop smoking. It's interesting in breast cancer specifically, they haven't found a very strong connection between tobacco use and breast cancer, but of course it's connected with all sorts of other right. cancers. Yeah. Um, alcohol, interestingly, is something you really should um, limit if you want to reduce your risk of breast cancer. Um, really, the average woman, if she's having more than three drinks a day, or 10 drinks every weekend, that's too much and that will increase your risk. And I second, you know, the lifestyle changes that you mentioned. 10 drinks a weekend or 10 drinks a week? So, well, I'm just kind of referring to maybe the, the, the woman who doesn't thing. drink every day but drinks quite heavily on the weekends and it kind of averages out to a larger amount of alcohol okay. through the week. Through yeah. the week. Yeah. And I'm sure as a surgeon, smoking is close to your heart because <laughs> it definitely impacts healing and recovery yeah. and, and yeah. all of those things yeah. too. So um, maybe it's not such a huge role for breast cancer, but it'll make a big role in how well your surgery goes. It how well yeah. your reconstruction yeah. heals and yeah. and everything else. So, um, at what age can women stop getting their mammograms? Oh, that's a that's a good question. It really is not so much an age. It really has more to do with your overall health and based on your other medical issues and your age. You know what's the What's kind of your expected life expectancy? How many more years will you live? Um, you know, so we sometimes throw out the age of around 75 as the age we should start at least talking with patients. Does it make sense to keep doing a screening mammogram? And a lot of that is because the cancers that are found at a later age are slow growing. And sometimes that cancer will take actually several years to really cause a woman a problem. Um, so if a woman or a patient has a lot of other medical issues, um, heart disease or advanced stage kidney disease, it might not make sense to go looking for something that would never have bothered that patient. What is the most common age for somebody to be diagnosed with breast cancer? Yeah, I don't know if I remember the exact uh, yeah. age epidemiology <laughs> off my head. I mean, it's certainly, um, it's uncommon for young women to get breast cancer, although yeah. we do see it. My patients age, you know, range anywhere from their 20s to their 90s, so it can really happen at any age. Um, but I would say on average, you know, I'm guessing it's probably between 60 and 70 or even higher. Yeah. Yeah. And now what do you say, Dr. Higgins, that like, with age, I've noticed at least that sometimes the more aggressive cancers might be in those younger patients. Yeah. And then the more, if you're like in your 70s and 80s, a lot of times it's a not as aggressive, less invasive type of cancer. Yeah, I kind yeah. of see that pattern at least. It's very true. I mean, and that, that most top common type of breast cancer we mentioned that is estrogen uh, driven. If that cancer shows up in a 29 year old, mm -hmm. that's an aggressive cancer no yes. matter what. Um, but that cancer coming at the age of 80 is almost always slow growing and less aggressive. Which is nice for those yeah. older people. Yeah. Some, sometimes people will come yeah. to me and say, you know, I wouldn't treat a cancer if I found it anyway, yeah. which is not an invalid way to think about it, but sometimes those treatments can be pretty easy. Yeah. If you catch it at an early stage and it's a favorable type, can you speak to that a little bit? 
Yeah, I mean, that that is true that, um, you know, our surgeons have, you know, easier yeah. ways. Maybe you can mention some of yeah, the I surgeries. Mean, actually, we and just, I just had a patient I talked in our conference yeah. about this week yeah. about this. You know, she's elderly. She has a very slow growing, not very aggressive cancer. So, you know, usually when we have a, a stage one breast cancer like this, we take it out and we also do a, um, a sentinel lymph node, and sometimes we talk about endocrine therapy. But when it's when they're elderly and they have all these other comorbidities, we decided the safest thing is just to take it out, and then she's done. And it's a, a very easy procedure. They don't even get general anesthesia; just a little bit of, you know, kind of happy juice. Yep, happy <laughs> juice. That's a good way to put it. It's a very small incision, and then they kind of go on with their life. Um, so even though she's elderly with lots of comorbidities, it's I think worth doing. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Receiving a diagnosis of breast cancer is a difficult moment for an individual and their loved ones. Sometimes it's hard to absorb all the information that's presented in that emotional conversation. A breast cancer navigator can help make sure the person gets all the information they need to make important decisions. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer introduces us to this valuable role. Nancy Terveen is one of the two breast patient navigators at Avera Health in Sioux Falls. Her job is to follow patients throughout their entire treatment. I have a good handle of what's going on in their unique situation, and I'm there to help guide things along um, and to kind of be that glue with all the group. Um, but then I am there for questions for patients because I work so closely with everyone. What's unique about breast patient navigators is that they're nurse practitioners who have a greater knowledge of the medical field. A lot of programs will use varying levels of maybe social workers or nurses, um, even like lay people um, who have limited medical knowledge to help out with patients' understanding. When a patient is diagnosed with breast cancer, they are sent to Tervine, who assists around 200 patients a month. Terveen says she helps a lot with answering questions after diagnosis. Most patients, when they come in and see the doctor and hear they have cancer, they're only hearing maybe about 20% of the conversation. Patient questions can range from chemotherapy to types of surgery. There's questions in regards to having the lumpectomy, which is just removing a, that cancer, but the breast stays, versus the mastectomy where the whole breast is gone, along with reconstruction or not, or sometimes there's a reduction or lift. Sometimes we can offer radiation during surgery too. Other questions can vary emotionally. If you're younger and you have kids and your job, or if you don't have kids and you're thinking, I want to have kids, can I do that now? How am I going to do that? And, you know, for the older person, it might be more of, well, I was going to retire. Should I retire now? Or can I retire? What about my grandkids? Or we travel? There's a lot of those aspects. Having breast cancer is a scary feeling, but Terveen says being available for any questions helps patients feel better about the whole process. I have a lot of patients that have been grateful just to have me there to walk them through their journey. So those navigators sound like they are incredibly valuable to the patients and also to you guys. They absolutely are. Um, they make my day flow much easier. 
and what a wonderful thing for yeah. the patients to have that accessible point of contact. So yeah. just really, really a neat, neat program. Um, we have definitely have more questions here, so let's uh, let's dive into some of these. Um, we have a question from a viewer about. Uh, breast cancer treatments uh, with radioactive isotopes. We know that certain prostate cancers are treated with implantable uh, radiation. How about breast cancer? Is there a role for that? Um, you know, this was something that was studied previously and used for a short period of time in breast cancer, but we're really not doing it anymore because we have such you know, tolerable, easier ways to give radiation after surgery. So I'm not sure if that was something around at all when you trained. I never saw that. Yeah. Um, but I guess they do do, on certain cancers, we can do intraoperative radiation. Yeah, that's true. Um, not in Burkines, but in Sioux Falls <laughs> we can do that, um, which is very great uh, if they are able to do that because then they only have to get that radiation dose in the operate operating room while they're getting the lumpectomy or you know getting that mass taken out. So there are different options of ways to give radiation besides just the standard way, but not usually with radio frequency. Okay. Yeah. So that's a, a patient who has breast cancer who might get their dose of radiation during their surgery as opposed to going down three or five days a week and getting two weeks worth of, of radiation afterwards. Is yeah. that yeah, we, right, yeah. yeah, it has to be um, a certain type of breast cancer, so something pretty small, something that, again, is a little slower growing, kind of a well-behaved cancer, mm -hmm. per se, um, and then they can get this single dose of radiation therapy in the operating room and do not have to come back for radiation later. And how does that impact healing? Well, so, um, as she says, it has to be a well-behaved tumor, and there is some operating room um, things that are important. So you have to have a certain amount of like thickness of tissue um, circumferentially around the area that you're getting radiated. So some patients might have the correct type of tumor biology, but if it's too close to the skin, you can't do it because you are correct. If it can affect healing if it's too close to the skin where you're sewing it up and stuff. Um, so it is a little variable on that. But when it's the right tumor in the right spot, it works excellent. Yeah. So another one of those biology is king kind yeah, of moments exactly. and that and and why it's so important um, to have a team that talks with you about your options because it's not going to be an option i'm hearing between the lines probably for most women it's really not an option yeah, yeah. so this truly is you know the care of a patient with breast cancer it really is a coordinated effort between multiple different doctors, your surgeon, your radiation doctor, your oncologist, and we all work very closely together. We were talking earlier about some of the, uh, how many meetings that you have. <laughs> <laughs> um, about exactly these things where you have yeah. all the teams of people who might be involved in taking care of a patient with cancer. Can you tell us a little bit about what might happen at one of those meetings? Yeah, um, we're really proud of the breast program that's been developed at Avera um, and based out of Sioux Falls, but really we support the whole region, all the Avera sites. Um, but every single week we discuss every patient who has a new breast cancer diagnosis as a group. So sitting around the table, I have myself and my partner, 
a couple of our surgeons, a radiation doctor, a pathologist, a radiologist, and we all uh, review that patient's information together and we come up with a plan together. And I think that's incredibly important and make sure that our patients are all getting the right care at the right time. Um, so every week we discuss anywhere from 15 to 20 it's patients. Yeah. We, we have a lot of patients come yeah. through our clinics. Um, and on top of that, we also run a tumor board that uh, addresses questions of patients with breast cancer from other Avera facilities. So we support our Aberdeen colleagues, Peer, uh, Mitchell, Marshall. Uh, Dr. Maraquin can join us at either of our tumor boards. <laughs> um, so that runs every other week, and we just discussed you know, 10 patients today that are across the state. So um, really is important to make sure you have the whole team on the same page and make sure you're getting the best care. Yeah, I think it's probably one of the most important parts of any cancer treatment is like this team approach and it's why medicine is awesome and that you can work with all these members of the team. They're all just geniuses and together they create like this great plan for each patient. So I think it's really great that they've created this program where, you know, I'm here in Brookings, but I'm getting all these Avera people's inputs like throughout the state or in Sioux Falls. So it's really awesome. And you know, they, I did my training um, at USD in Sanford and Sanford has a great program like that too. So I think it's become essentially the standard of care in the nation is that, yeah. that these patients are being treated as a with a team, not just mm -hmm. one provider, which makes you have better care and Absolutely. better outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe those different perspectives can be so yes. So a useful. surgeon and an oncologist sometimes we're thinking totally different things. <laughs> yes. We get on the same page. Well, yeah. We get on the same page. Well, but that's the whole point. That's yeah. the point exactly. of this is to get on the same page. Yeah. And to decide in this circumstance yeah. what is the best we can do for yeah. this person yeah. and that's just a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. So we have a, a question here that I think flows into some really important uh, topics to discuss. How often should you have a mammogram if your family is high risk? Ladies? That's an interesting question. So, you know, just starting with the general guidelines, I'm very supportive of the guidelines that say a yearly or an annual mammogram. And a lot of that is because the breast is a little bit challenging to interpret on a mammogram, and it's those changes year to year that can sometimes allow us to find that breast cancer. Um, you know, the question about having a high, uh, you know, a, a strong family history of breast cancer, maybe your mom and your grandma had breast cancer and you're worried, that's very tailored to that patient. And oftentimes I say, kind of start with your family medicine doctor, talk about that history. And if it does seem concerning that you could be at higher risk, usually we recommend you get seen at a comprehensive breast center like the one in Sioux Falls to, to see if you, you kind of meet what we call kind of the guidelines for screening more frequently frequently. Um, so most women are okay with a once a year screening, but there are a handful of women that might benefit from something more frequent. And maybe alternating with mm -hmm. a mammogram and mm -hmm. a higher, an MRI or, yeah. or something else, one of those more advanced yeah. uh, techniques that Dr. Chowdhury discussed. And how about genetic testing? Yeah, that's another mm -hmm. thing I would say. Genetic yeah. testing, I think, plays a big role mm -hmm. in determining if we need to have high screening, you know, doing it every six months or even doing like prophylactic mastectomies. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I, I don't know how often you send people to genetic counseling, but I assume it's probably quite a lot yeah. if they have a yeah. high family history or other high risk factors. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, a woman who has a family history of breast cancer, either other cancers like prostate and pancreatic can be associated with some of the mutations or the genetic changes that can put a family at risk for breast cancer. Um, certainly talk with your doctor and we can always, you know, get you in with a genetic counselor to make that decision. Certainly if a woman has a high risk gene um, such as BRCA or BRCA1 and 2 are the two uh, more commonly known, those women uh, do benefit from more frequent screening until they have their prophylactic mastectomies. And I think, um, you know, don't just go to 23andMe. This is a very more nuanced conversation mm -hmm. and um, having that genetic counselor that sits down and looks at your family history and says this person had this type of cancer and that person had that type of cancer and this is your genetic connection and this is your risk because you know, maybe your 23andMe is going to come back and say, no, we don't see any mutations. But that doesn't mean that you don't have to worry about it. There's a lot of nuance to that. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. And how about men? Should men get breast, should men get mammograms? Yeah, you know, the, the answer is no for a man who has never had breast cancer. Um, there's, there's no recommendations for regular screening mammogram. However, um, men should do self-exams periodically, should make sure that they don't feel a mass, because although uncommon, if you can find that little lump early, that's gonna be beneficial. Um, you know, certainly a man who has had a breast cancer and has maybe had um, a mastectomy on one side, we might consider doing a mammogram on the other side for that patient. And how about those men who have that huge genetic risk yeah. factor? Is there a role for mammograms in those men? Yeah, I would assume probably, you know, like BRCA or BRCA2 has uh, a more high risk of male breast cancer, so I assume that would be kind of a discussion. Yeah, to be honest, but, I'd have to remind myself yeah, of the exact yeah. guidelines because it doesn't come across our, yeah. our clinic too much, but in, the, in a similar way of a man who's had a breast cancer on one side and we're looking at the other, a lot of this is more kind of expert-driven opinion than kind of guidelines because it's so rare. Mm -hmm. Certainly if a man has one of those high-risk genes, um, at minimum having regular chest exams with a, a qualified physician and then likely considering some sort of breast imaging. Yeah. yeah, and I, I think that points to a really important topic, and that's that things change in medicine. They change all yeah. the time. All the time. And yeah. I look a lot of things up yeah. every day yep. because, yep. golly, I haven't dealt with that in a few years. Let's see if anything's new, if yeah. anything's different. And um, if you're afraid to do that, then you're doing a real disservice mm -hmm. to the people oh, yeah. you're seeing. Yeah. So it's always important to be willing to say, you know, I'm not quite sure what the current is, but I'll, I'll look to find out. Yeah. So, And we are out of time, ladies. So it's, this has gone so quickly. Um, 20 seconds, last thought. Yeah, I'm, we're coming up on Breast Cancer Awareness Month, so if you have not had your yearly mammogram, if you are 40 and you have not had a mammogram, please call and schedule one. Perfect. Yes, 40 is the age. I think the other thing um, is if you have any concerns at all, it's better just to be evaluated and be told, oh, everything's fine, than to just sit there and let something that's bad get worse. Mm -hmm. 
Beautiful all, all the time. Yeah. Thank you so much, ladies. Yes. Thanks for having us. The winner of our prize tonight is Ruth from Henry. Thank you, Ruth, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. And we'll be back after this. On Call with the Prairie Doc has been a leading source of health education for 21 seasons. Join us as we continue to provide health information based on science built on trust. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube to access the entire Prairie Doc library today. My mother had six siblings, 16 aunts and uncles, and innumerable cousins. She was the first in her family to be diagnosed with breast cancer. I think of my mom every time one of my patients tells me they aren't concerned about breast cancer because it doesn't run in their family. Unfortunately, that's true of most people who are diagnosed with the disease. I also think of my mom every time I do a breast exam or teach someone else how to do a self-exam. Her breast cancer was one not detectable by the mammogram technology available in the early 2000s. Even today with 3D mammograms, not all breast cancer can be seen on routine screenings. She found her cancer herself by noticing a change in her breast. Her diagnosis was delayed, however, because having had multiple previous biopsies that turned out to be nothing, she prioritized all the other things she had to do that spring over going to her doctor. The importance of being vigilant for these changes is not limited to one gender. Although most breast cancer patients are female, approximately 1% are male. Anyone who notices a change in their breast should be seen by a clinician. Breast cancer detection has changed dramatically since my mother was diagnosed. 3D mammograms, which present clearer images to the radiologist, are routine. Contrast enhanced spectral mammography and breast MRI offer new tools to high-risk individuals, women with abnormal screening mammograms, and their healthcare teams. People known to be at high risk might take medication to reduce that risk and might undergo more frequent imaging and exams. Genetic counseling and genetic testing help us identify those who could benefit from this close follow-up. Breast cancer treatment has also changed dramatically. Advances in surgical treatment have reduced the risk of post-operative complications such as lymphedema, which is chronic swelling caused by the disruption in the flow of fluid through the lymph nodes. Specialized testing of a person's cancer lets oncologists identify those patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy. Conversely, it also lets them identify those who might skip it. New classes of medications offer hope, even to people whose cancer has spread, and improve the tolerability and effectiveness of old medications. We've gotten better at helping patients and their families navigate the challenges that come with the disease and its treatments. Many things in medicine have changed over the 25 years I've been practicing.
the advances in cancer treatment may well be some of the most exciting. But some old wisdom still holds true. If you notice a change in your breast, please get it checked out. Even if you had a normal mammogram just a few months ago. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Mariquin and Dr. Higgins, for volunteering their time to help us learn more about breast cancer. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and online. Listen to us most Wednesday mornings at 9.30 on KBRK in Brookings or online. And be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, thanks for joining us for another episode of health information based on science and built on trust. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people. Orthopedic surgeons specialize in the musculoskeletal system, the bones, joints, ligaments, tendons, and muscles essential to movement and everyday life. Making sure you can move next time on Call with the Prairie Doc. Hello, my name is Dave Hank, and I've been a board member at Healing Words Foundation for the last nine years. Well, my background goes all the way back to DeSmet, South Dakota. Uh, where Rick Holm and I were childhood friends. We were at USD together, and uh, we've managed to stay close friends for our entire lives. And I spent the bulk of my career with Weyerhaeuser Company in the Pacific Northwest, and I led their production forestry research group. Uh, I also spent time on the faculties of Auburn, Virginia Tech, Purdue, and affiliate faculty positions at University of Washington, University of Idaho. And in retirement, I've spent most of my time in the nonprofit world in board service. When Rick and Joni were putting the foundation together several years ago, Rick I would call and ask a question or two, and I usually had the answer, or at least where he could go. And, and so eventually, he and Joni invited me to be a member of the Healing Words foundation board and that's how it happened. The foundation and, and the Prairie Doc Media production is really committed to truthful, timely tested medical information. And there's a lot of information out there now that's uh, either half truth or no truth. And of course being a scientist by profession, we're always seekers of truth, understanding full well that the truth can change with additional research. Every dollar that's pledged or given to Healing Words Foundation unleashes an army of volunteers. You know, the foundation and the Prairie Doc Media puts out really good stuff, very useful things. So there's a high return on the investment to invest in the Prairie Doc. For more information or to donate, head to www.prairiedoc.org or send your donations to Post Office Box 752, Brookings, South Dakota 57006. Thank you for your support.
Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by. At Avera, our nationally recognized health system will be right here with you, with care and coverage. Hello Possibility, Hello Healthy. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandria District Medical Society, Pierre District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Abadin Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swift Health Communications.